It is now time for Diary of a Wrestling Fan with Bill Chase. And now, here he is, the only other man in the world who's allowed to wear the number 99, Bill Chase! Thank you, thank you, Mr. Podcast Announcer, and welcome to another episode of Diary of a Wrestling Fan, the podcast that chronicles my journey in 33 amazing years being a fan of professional wrestling. I am Bill Chase. Thank you for listening on Anchor, Spotify, wherever podcasts are streamed. Even thank you if you're listening on YouTube. If by chance you are listening on YouTube, hit that subscribe button right now. Before we start, I want to give a quick shout out to Pro Wrestling Ontario. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Hit the like button. Follow, follow, follow. Just look what we're doing. We got a lot of great things coming up. And of course, subscribe to our YouTube channel. If you're listening to this podcast on YouTube, go to the video, click the above link, and subscribe, subscribe, subscribe. But wait till after the podcast, of course. On Wrestling Ontario's YouTube channel, you will find promos, you will find matches, you'll find the backstage chaos of Foundation, and you'll find complete shows, including both Iron Cup tournaments. Top-notch competition from bell to bell, match to match, from show to show, up and down the card. You name it, we got it. Pro Wrestling Ontario. Well, this podcast is certainly going to be unique because we're going to be covering a portion of the career of somebody who's considered to be one of the all-time greats in the history of professional wrestling. I'm talking about Jake the Snake Roberts in WCW. That's right, Jake the Snake Roberts, for those of you who may not remember, had a run, a brief, yes, somewhat memorable run, but actually I find over the years it's kind of been forgotten maybe in the last decade or so. I remember it was being talked a lot about on message boards and whatnot, on nostalgic groups, and yeah, over the years, though, it's kind of been forgotten, but there's uh, the six certain words that make people remember this feud right away. Spin the wheel, make the deal. That's right, Jake the Snake Roberts came to WCW in the summer of 1992, but before we get to that, for me growing up, Jake the Snake Roberts uh, was a very polarizing character. Even as a kid, I was captivated and drawn in by everything he said. That was the whole beauty of his character. That mystique, that eeriness, that downright creepiness at times. And he always made the point to say that, you know, I don't need to come out here and yell and shout like all these other guys. Uh, if people really want to hear what I have to say, they'll have to listen in. And that was the way Jake Crutch executed every promo. There are times he'd get heated, there are times he'd get intense, but he never really full out yelled very often. And the only time he got heated or intense is when the situation called for it. Jake the Snake Roberts was one of the, I'll dare say right now, is one of the greatest promos in the history of professional wrestling. And the character itself was just had, a, just had this natural aura to it. I remember being, you know, six years old and seeing him cut these promos on Ted DiBiase, the Million Dollar Man. And I'm thinking to myself, oh, when Jake gets his hands on him, he's a dead man. DiBiase's a dead man. And I loved it. And the funny thing was, too, is that my, you know, even though I've been a fan of professional wrestling until I was four years old, and I always liked Jake as a baby face, um, as a good guy, as I, I knew him back then. But uh, I truly got obsessed with wrestling. It became like my be all end all because of Jake Roberts. Why? Because I hated him so much. And here's why. I can only do a whole other separate episode about this, but I'll, I'll briefly go over it. So in late 1991, in the WWF, uh, Jake the Snake Roberts had turned uh, bad, <laughs> and I was really disappointed when that happened. 
when uh, he betrayed the Ultimate Warrior and aligned himself with the Undertaker. And what happened there was that Jake uh, had this new catchphrase, trust me. And then he started to feud with the Macho Man, Randy Savage, by crashing his wedding. By putting a snake in one of the wedding gift boxes. And the Undertaker coming in from behind with the urn and nailing Macho Man upside the head. Jake being the catalyst for this whole thing. Now, if that wasn't bad enough, then of course there was an infamous incident in November of 1991 that aired on Superstars where I was eight years old and I remember watching this in my basement where uh, my room was uh, built at the time. And I saw Jake call out Macho Man and I knew Macho couldn't put his hands on Jake or he might not get reinstated because Macho was trying to be reinstated because he had lost that retirement match to the Ultimate Warrior at WrestleMania 7. So, of course, Macho, because he has a hot temper, that's what he's known for, goes to the ring, goes after Jake, gets suckered in, and then I remember Jake hiding Macho in the rose, and as soon as he ran out the Cobra, I'm thinking, oh my god, no. Like, and I remember cutting, cause cutting my hair like you hear him right now, and covering my face, and I was like that, because I, I, I just had a feeling about what he was going to do. Now, I may have been eight years old, but I know what snakes do. You know what I mean? And when he put that snake on Macho Man's arm, I freaked out. I was terrified. I never seen anything like this. I'd only been watching professional wrestling for a few years at this point, of course, maybe both four years or so. And I'd never seen anything like this, especially the WWF, which had that, I don't want to say 110% wholesome image, but it was family-oriented entertainment for the longest time. And seeing something like this, it kind of went above the bounds of what I was used to seeing uh, as a little kid. And when I saw that, and I remember the evil look Jake was giving uh, after it had happened when he's like kind of staring at a snake. And I'm just, I just can't, he tried to kill the macho. I said to my dad after, he tried to kill the macho man. He tried to kill the macho man, dad. And I'm freaking out. And I was heavily invested into that feud. I got a, a great thrill of uh, the, the payoff to that feud on Saturday Night's Main Event watching Jake get his ass kicked by the Macho Man. I hated Jake more than any heel. And since that angle, like there are times, like, leading up to late 1991, I wasn't watching every single week. There were episodes I'd miss here and there. After that, I vowed never to miss an episode of wrestling. It had to be pretty special circumstances for me to miss an episode of Superstars or uh, Challenge, or as, as I was known here in Canada, Cavalcade, or here in Hamilton, at least, in the Ontario area. And I would never miss an episode uh, of wrestling after that. And that's what I mean. Jake Roberts got me so invested in that insanely devious character. I just, I, I wanted to see him just get annihilated. And watching Watch Man do that to him on Saturday night's main event, in early 1992, I got a great pleasure out of that. You can imagine even more of a pleasure that watching The Undertaker, who had um, finally left Jake's side and was no longer on side anymore, um, beat him at WrestleMania 8. That was also great, too. And then suddenly Jake disappeared. He was gone. I had actually wondered what happened to him. My thought was, well, The Undertaker beat him so badly, he probably said, I'm packing or whatever, you know. Not those words, I mean... You know, he beat him so badly that he doesn't want to come back. So, despite the fact that Jake was gone, he was a heel that really drew me in. 
I was still wondering where he was. I kind of forgot about it as as time went on. Now, I remember it was the summer of 1992. Now, at this point, like I said, I mentioned this in the in the, uh, the first first episode I did in the archives uh, that it was Superstars Tape. That I was also really getting a WCW at this point. Now, I had yet to watch a WCW pay-per-view. Um, in late 1991, in this region, we, we started getting pay-per-views. And that included, of course, WCW. But yet, I never got the WCW ones. I had always gotten the just the WF ones. Uh, at this point, I had ordered Survivor Series um, 91. I had ordered uh, Royal Rumble 92, uh, WrestleMania 8. And uh, SummerSlam was coming up, and we were definitely going to get that. My, my, my dad promised. My parents so I'm laying there in bed, and again, I'm living on Clyde Street at the time, here in Hamilton, I'm in bed, and, you know, I'm kind of dozing off while watching WWE Worldwide. Now, Worldwide was on in a late hour. Uh, we, didn't get t- we didn't get TBS until the following year, so I wasn't able to watch uh, WWE Saturday Night, although obviously they would show stuff on Worldwide that happened on that show. So I guess it was part of their, their Bash tour, and I remember listening on commentary, it was a match between... Nikita Koloff and uh, Ravishing Rick Rude for the uh, WWE US title. Now, Sting was on commentary at the time with uh, Jim Ross, the good old JR, and I remember because Sting had a stipulation where he couldn't get involved, I guess, in this match, or otherwise he'd lose his rematch against Vader, because Sting had just recently lost the uh, WWE Championship uh, not long before this. So, what I remember is that Cactus Jack came to the ring after Nicole had Rude pinned, and he's you know he obviously was trying to help Rick Rude out because Jack was you know one of the top heels in WWE at the time because he had just had that feud with Sting. They had that awesome brawl at the, the Beach Blast pay per view earlier that June. So Sting's making the save uh, using the chair to get rid of both Jack and then Rude. Uh, and I'm like, you know, at this point, you know, I, I kind of woke up a little bit seeing Sting come to the ring. Like I said, it was really late at night, sometimes I fell asleep during Worldwide. Not because it was boring, but simply because I just, you know, again, it was late and I'm only nine years old here. But yet then, I see on the side screen there, coming out of the crowd, and a picture in picture is Jake the Snake Roberts. And right away, I perked right up. I'm like, what? Jake comes through the crowd. And just viciously attacks Sting with two DDTs on the chair. I am almost standing on the bed. I went from almost being asleep to being wide awake because of this. And I just could not believe what I was seeing unfold before my very eyes. Now, I'm thinking right away, of course, Jake Roberts is going to feud with Sting. They're going to have a match on pay-per-view. Now, I didn't know what the next pay-per-view was, to be honest, because, again, I, I forgot that Halloween Havoc existed, even though I remember seeing commercials for it the year prior on WCW programming, but I'm thinking, is there's going to be some, something before that, like, or something, I'm thinking, come on. So Jake got there, he started calling out Sting. Sting uh, sold the uh, injuries for a while, he was gone on TV for a few weeks, I believe, and yet... I was psyched for this because, again, I hated Jake so much. Again, I want to see Sting kick his ass. And as the months went on, 
to uh, to build out to Halloween Havoc. They finally announced the match. I believe that's September. So Jake, you know, cutting good promos on Sting. Sting was cutting some pretty intense promos at this time too. And then they announced the match would be determined in a stipulation called "Spin the Wheel, Make the Deal." <laughs> now, for those who don't remember, "Spin the Wheel, Make the Deal." was a match that only occurred twice. This was the first time. Where with one spin of the wheel, they would just, it, would, uh, it was like supposed to be like the most dangerous matches on one wheel. And wherever you spun it, like Wheel of Fortune almost, wherever you spun the wheel, whatever it landed on, that would be the match that Jake and Sting would fight in. Now Sting at this point is one of my favorites. Again, in WCW, him and Pillman. And yet, I... I, I I felt how special the actually Sting and Jake the Snake Roberts would really be. Now, keep in mind, 1992 WCW, business-wise, was not doing well. Now, again, of course, I don't know this at the time. But yet, even in hindsight, watching some 1992 WCW, there's a lot of good stuff. A lot of really good stuff. And then Bill Watts came in. Nah. <laughs> I'm actually just kidding there. Like, a lot of things Watts did did not make a lot of sense. Like, pushing his son. But at the same time, though, Watts' presence, to me, didn't ruin things enough to, that was noticeable even now. Like, yeah, there's little things that he did that were kind of ridiculous, but to me, it didn't hurt the product, even watching it nowadays. It didn't hurt it to the point where I felt it was bad or even, you know, even mediocre. I still thought 1992 WCW had a great talent pool. You had Sting. You had the Steiners. You had Vader. Cactus Jack, Ricky Steamboat, The Dangerous Alliance, Rick Rude. Again, y y Nikita Koloff, you had a deep talent pool. Now, Luger was gone at this point. Flair was in WWF. So, WWE was trying their hardest to continue on without uh, without some of their top guns that they had been, you know, marketing as their top guys for years. Again, yeah, like I said, Pillman, you had... Uh, oh, man, uh, Dr. Death, Steve Williams, and Terry Bam Bam Gordy. You know, an amazing tag team. You had Dustin Rhodes, who's really coming into his own at this time. Ron Simmons. Damn! That's right, Ron Simmons. And, again, I liked a lot of these guys. Barry Windham. Their talent pool was deep. Their, their business may not have been, you know, doing overly well. But, to me, in hindsight, I just think that the, the, the damage of the Jim Hurt era left a sour taste in the mouths of so many fans that they just gave up. And sadly, they missed out on a lot of good stuff here. And I and I feel bad for someone like Sting in hindsight because even though Sting still managed, has become a huge star and a legend in the wrestling game, you don't realize the load he had to carry here until you look back in hindsight. So I'm watching the build-up for this. And the build-up isn't bad. Now, Jake aligns himself with Cactus Jack, who again has been feeding with Sting for the better part of a year at this point. They started feeding like late 91, and they're still, they're still at it. And, you know, they you add the, because uh, the Barbarian came in. The Barbarian came in from WWE. They, they made him a main event heel to try to feud with Ron Simmons, who had just shocked Vader to win the uh, win the WWE Championship. And a lot, of, a lot of interesting stuff happening at this point. Oh, my goodness. So, I, and then I remember the, the mini-movie. That came out just as the pay-per-view is being hyped in the final, like, three, four weeks or so. <laughs> you gotta watch this thing. WCW had this habit of 
producing many movies to build their pay-per-views that happened. Uh, three times that I recall. Of course, this would be the first. Wow, this Halloween Havoc was trendsetting. The first spin the wheel, make the deal, and then the first mini movie. <laughs> so, <laughs> sorry, I'm just laughing thinking about it. I'm laughing thinking about all three of those freaking mini movies. <laughs> okay, sorry. <laughs> so okay, um, you, you got Jake in a bar, just deviously sitting down, and uh, I believe it was Medusa who was looking all sexy by the wheel and that, and. No, that's not a misogynistic term. Don't get offended, everyone. She actually looked really good here. And she always looked really good. I always thought uh, Medusa Michelli was gorgeous. Uh, and even when I came into the WWE with one drop lace, she looked great. So, she was a childhood crush, I will not lie. So then, Jason's just kind of like deviously like grinning and laughing as they wind us in the bar chant, spin the wheel, make the deal, spin the wheel, make the deal. I remember I was watching this just like about a week ago to prepare for this, and all I'm thinking was like, what is this name of this biker game, the, the biker gang, the Duds of Anarchy? Like, come on. <laughs> and it's one of these things that is so bad, it's good. So Sting comes in, you know, the, the place freezes, uh, Cheatham, the evil, the evil, uh, sorry, I shouldn't say that, the evil little person. I'm trying, people, I'm trying. The evil little person who I, you know, <laughs> Oh, Cheetah, yeah. Get it? So, uh, he just, like, has this dialogue. Uh, I still say he didn't reach... He, he, in this vignette, he wasn't reaching the greatness he would with uh, the White Castle of Fear. Play the game! Or uh, the, the Beach Blast promo where he puts a bomb on a boat. I'm not kidding. I'll recap that one day. <laughs> so anyway, I'm all over the place here, so I digress. So, you get some lines from Cheetah, uh, the evil little person, and... Sting has this threatening dialogue that just was really wooden. It, it was almost as if he was the most uncomfortable action star ever. And Jake just seems natural at this because I think, you know, again, you got one of the best promos in the business. Jake is going to make the most of this, regardless of how cheesy or tacky it may be. Jake will, will commit to it. I'm not saying Sting didn't commit to it. I just don't think this was Sting's forte at that time. Keeping in mind, Sting wasn't, like, when he got his main event push in 88, he wasn't the, always overly comfortable on the microphone. He would do well for the character. You know what I mean? He still got his point across. He still got the crowd riled up, so he did his job. But I found even over the years, uh, his promos were, again, if you look back, were improving drastically. Where he was cutting some great ones on Vader and Cactus Jack. Like, he was... Sting could get intense and really get at his rivals, like, verbally. And, you know, try to talk people into the building and, and did, doing it fairly well. But I just think in this video here, he just did not seem comfortable at all. And then, you know, the whole, what's the deal? Well, the deal is on this wheel, Sting. You know, like... I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, my idea, but like, <laughs> and then the 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 winos in the bar, the duds of anarchy, keep uh, <laughs> keep chanting. <laughs> anyway, any Medusa look. <laughs> I gotta reiterate that. So finally, they go face to face. They spin the wheel, and then lightning bolts come out of their eyes. They explode. Do be continued at Halloween.
because why not? <laughs> and you don't get me wrong, I love this. This, this. this made this whole thing all the more memorable. To me, it's what the people remember most about this feud is that mini-movie and the whole spin-the-wheel, make-the-deal stipulation. Now, as a kid, I'm thinking, oops, sorry, I knocked something over. Uh, as a kid, all I could think at the time was, this is strange. I remember watching the this this like this promo video on an episode of Worldwide, and all I could think to myself was, "Why did lightning come out of their eyes?" That's all I could think by the end. Of it. All I could think, why they explode? I didn't. I, I don't know. Even as a kid, who probably this stuff was geared towards in a lot of ways, I didn't get it. I mean, I got why they were feuding, obviously. I mean, got a DDT done twice on a chair. But I was excited for the wheel concept, because I saw uh, some of the matches. Actually, let me bring up uh, the matches that were on the wheel. Okay, so we had a uh, Texas Bull Rope match. The first blood match, a coal miner's glove. Texas death match. Prince of Darkness match, I still don't know what that is. Um... You had a barbed wire match. You had an I quit match. Uh, there was a spinner's choice where the spinner, obviously, well, you, I don't know, I have to explain that to you. Uh, let's see what else we had. We had the uh, Russian chain match, dog collar match, and uh, cage match. Uh, well, this was an interesting one. Uh, the Lumberjack Belts match, where the ring would be surrounded by uh, Lumberjacks wielding leather straps. So that, that would have been pretty interesting. Um, oh, okay, yeah, the Prince of Darkness match, sorry, was a blindfold match. So I don't know, so I don't know if that was a, a deliberate, uh, you know, nod to Jake uh, and Rick Martel's match at WrestleMania 7. Or, I don't know. But uh, yeah, these, some of these matches are actually really good. Um, in, uh, in theory and that, because there's been historically some really good matches with these stipulations. I've never seen a coal miner's glove match, and I'm pretty much foreshadowing here what we're going to get to um, when we get to the actual Halloween Havoc event. So we'll get to that momentarily. Now, I will say this too. I remember even as a kid that Jake and Sting didn't interact all that much outside of an eight-man tag team match uh, at Clash of the Champions, even that was kept very, very limited. Now, to me, again, that's that's a great move. To me, that's a fantastic move. But a few, the, 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 a match that they're building as a money match, and they were. The WCW, in my opinion, did a great job building this thing. Now, again, people shit on it all, all the time for reasons that we'll get to, obviously. But really, a match of this, again, against Sting, the franchise player, their top babyface, Jake the Snake Roberts, one of the biggest names in all professional wrestling uh, for the better part of, you know, uh, more than six, seven years at this point. And it worked perfectly to me. The, to, the build was really well done. And I was getting excited too. And again, if you recall some of my other podcasts, I mentioned how I didn't like to push my luck. With my parents, and not because you know I was intimidated and feeling that way. It's just that I, I tried to pick my battles even back then. Again, I I love the fact that I was getting to watch WWF pay per views. I knew they weren't cheap, so I really didn't try to push my luck with the WWE ones, even though I want to watch a good chunk of them. So 
as the event is drawing closer, again, it's, I mean, I'm in grade, I just started uh, grade, uh, grade four at this time. And I remember talking to a friend of me of mine. We have one of those guys who picked on me. It would be my friend sometimes. was a big wrestling fan. His name was Ricky. And we were talking about the Jake Roberts Sting match being built up and how we were looking forward to it, but I wasn't sure I was going to watch it. He was kind of making fun of me. Oh, you're not going to watch it. You can't watch it. I'm going to watch it. You know, stuff like that, right? So the way nine-year-olds talk, I guess, back then. And then I remember the weekend... the show was coming up, Halloween Havoc 92. And I had showered already. I was, I, I was you know, not, I didn't, I didn't have an early bedtime, but, I, you know, usually I try to shower early on a Sunday. And I'm just sitting there on the couch with my dad watching TV. And he's flicking channels, and we see the pay-per-view countdown show. Halloween Havoc was literally starting in about six minutes. And we're watching the hype for Sting and Jake. I think my dad was intrigued, again, because my dad, being a big WWF guy, was a Jake the Sting Roberts fan. And he looked at me and said, do you want to get it? Of course, I didn't hesitate. I said, yes, absolutely. So my dad picked up the phone, called the cable company, and we got it just in time. This was my first WCW pay-per-view. Spin the wheel, make the deal. Now, I'm going to say this. This might be an unpopular opinion to some. But the the spin the wheel, make the deal concept, I thought, I still think to this day, was a good idea. It was different. It was something, an entirely different concept than any wrestling company was doing at that time. I thought it was amazing. WCW was really trying their hardest. They had these efforts at these you know, computerized challenges or whatever, and, like, they were just trying different things at this point, and I went to them because, like I said, business was not the best for them at this time. Little did I know, of course. But you can see, like, again, watching this with, you know, older eyes, you see that they were really making a very, very wholehearted effort to improve themselves, and that is why I really can't fault them even for, you know, the mistakes. Well, you know, I will make jokes again about you know Bill Watts's regime and you know again these mini movies like we just saw, but clearly the effort is there. And I'm looking forward to the show because it's actually a pretty stacked show on paper. And I'm thinking this is going to be amazing. I can't stand. Jake Roberts, and he's going to get his ass kicked in one of these matches. So, the opening match of this show was uh, Michael Hayes, R. Anderson, and Bobby Eaton, who were pretty much, you know, still part of the Fault of Rain Dangerous Alliance, was kind of crumbling at this point, we pretty much had with the departure of Larry Zabisco, and, you know, uh, Heyman, or Polly Dangerously, you know, the time was still around. They're taking on the team of Johnny Gunn, the Z-Man Tom Zink, and Shane Douglas, a.k.a. World's Most Babyface Tag Team. <laughs> I'm not kidding. You can't get any more babyface. Even Doug, like, I know because Douglas, you know, it's quite questionable to say that, but at this time, Douglas was 120% what you mean babyface. So, 
Yeah, I remember I remember because I actually like the Z-Man. I was actually a big fan of the Z-Man. Uh, the other two I can really care about at all. Uh, I hated Arn Anderson, especially at this point. And of course, so I was going for the you know the baby face, and I was getting really psyched for this show. Again, it's my first WWE pay per view. I've been watching WWE for over a year at this point. I get to watch Sting on pay per view. This was the excitement that I felt. So anyway, I remember um, baby faces won, and uh, next up was Brian Pillman, who had just turned bad, and it broke my heart. Broke my freaking heart in half when Pillman turned heel. It happened not long before this, and he's facing Ricky Steamboat. I like Ricky Steamboat too, because I remember him briefly as the dragon in, in WWF. And I like to shoot with Rick Rude. I was always cheering for him to, to kill Rude. Steamboat to me is one of the best baby faces ever. And I was so torn here. I even remember my dad saying while we're watching this match, I thought you liked Brian Pillman. I said, yeah, but he's bad now. <laughs> he's bad. He did very bad things. <laughs> oh, such a nerd. <laughs> but yeah, so... Um, I actually watched this match again recently. Oh, it was very underrated. I found very, very underrated. Really good match between these two. And I remember being right into it as a kid, too. I was going for Ricky because, again, I wanted him to teach Pillman a lesson. Yeah, I'm not kidding. Now, now, another big match they'd hyped on this card was that, okay, so without giving you the the full story to kind of steer away from this, what this podcast is, basically, a lot of us know Flair left with the NWA title in 1991. Uh, as a result of that, they came with the WCW Championship, which was now the main championship of the company. Um, the title eventually was returned. And so they crowned a new NWA champion in Japan uh, by the name of uh, Masa Chono, Masahiro Chono. And he was feeding with Rick Rude at the time because he beat Rick Rude in the finals of the tournament to win the championship. Now, there was a really hype match at the time, I remember. Remember, because uh, Rude, again, had been feeding primarily with like Steamboat and Sting for like the last year. So it was different to see uh, Chono. I had no, obviously, again, I'm nine years old. I think I remember hearing about Chono a little bit in like the uh, the PWI magazines, but really I didn't know much, anything about him. Honestly, the only uh, the only uh, Japanese based wrestler I knew about at the time, or two of them, was Jushin Liger, who I thought was freaking amazing, and um, and uh, Muda, great Muda. So I was curious about this. You know, what I mean, I'm always curious when I see a wrestler. Um, a new wrestler come in and whatnot when he especially when he's wearing a championship. So they, they had this thing where they had referees. Um, is it Kensuke Sasaki was uh, Chono's ref, and then Harley Race, who was a manager of Vader at the time, was uh, Rude's pick to be a referee. So then there was uh, a match where Vader subbed in for Rick Rude who was scheduled to defend his U.S. title against Nikita Koloff. Again, they've been... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Rude was obviously feuding with Koloff as well at this time, besides Steamboat. And... Vader, of course, had to take Rude's place. That was the deal that uh, uh, Paulie Dangerously had made. as Vader versus Nikita for the U.S. title. Um, Nikita got his ass kicked. <laughs> 
So, and this was it. I, this was actually it for Nikita. He was done after this. I believe this might have been his last match. Uh, at least the last one on television, from what I understand. He was pretty much gone after this. So, yeah, that was it. Um, Vader beat Nikita as a substitute for, as a surrogate champion for Rude. Then there was a tag team title match. It was Barry Windham and Dustin Rose against Dr. Death Steve Williams and stunning Steve Austin. Yes, this is... Uh, <laughs> I remember being excited. I really like Dustin Rhodes a lot. I thought Dustin Rhodes was freaking amazing. And this was a very exciting match. It went to a full-time limit. Then a great moment where... Because <laughs> there had been dissension for a while between Medusa and Polly Dangerously. And um, obviously Heyman's making... So I keep calling him Heyman. I know his name is Dangerously at this time, but... Um, again, he, he was calling her like a hooker, stuff like that. Like, uh, uh, she's too stupid to understand because she's a woman. So, oh, it was some great stuff from, from, uh, Polly Dangerously. And then finally Medusa snaps and the place just erupts. So that was, a, that was some interesting stuff too. So then Sting, uh, Sting came out and spun the wheel. Now there had been rumors for years. Like obviously there's no confirmation of this that I can find anyway that the wheel wasn't gimmicked. So it landed on Coal Miner's glove. I asked my dad, what is a Coal Miner's glove match? And he just looked at me and said, I don't know. Uh, he heard of some of the other matches, but not, not that one. So, okay, Coal Miner's glove match, cool. So Ric Flair, or sorry, Rick Rude and Masahiro Chono for the NWA title. I watched this one recently. I did not enjoy this at all. And for and I always heard too that the match they had in in Japan was uh, I never seen it yet. And apparently it was a classic. And just something wasn't wasn't clicking here. I guess from what I understand, I don't I don't know. But uh, Chono got disqualified. Whatever. So then Ron Simmons took on the Barbarian. He beat the Barbarian. I, even as a kid, I couldn't buy the Barbarian. <laughs> so I just remember him not really winning all that often when I saw him on uh, WWF growing up. I mean, he won a lot like early on, but like as time went on, he just kind of was not really around all that much. So yeah, and then finally we get the Coal Miners Glove match, and here it is. Here it is. So basically, the Coal Miners Glove... And it was a, a glove, a very strong glove, I guess, a loaded glove. I still couldn't make sense of it at the time. On a pole. So, I'm kind of confused here, but whatever. Jake Roberts versus Sting. That's what I'm here for. I'm thinking this is going to be exciting. This is going to be great. It's going to be like a, a like a bloodbath. I'm actually thinking that my head is nine years old. I'm going to be blood. That's right. Cool. And the match happened, nothing of note happened. I remember feeling very disappointed. Sting grabbed the glove, he won, Cactus Jack tried to get involved. The snake bit Jake in the face. Basically Jake trying to hold the snake on his face. Uh I'm nine years old. I don't know anything about star ratings or what a classic match is supposed to be. I just knew what I enjoyed and what I didn't. I didn't enjoy this. 
I was happy Sting won. I was all. Uh, I just hung my head. Like, I'm like. Even at nine. I was so, so badly disappointed in this. I didn't feel Jake really got his ass kicked. It wasn't uh, a, a grudge match to me. Yeah. Let's just say it'd be a long time before my dad would order another, another WCW pay-per-view for me. <laughs> I did not get to watch another WCW pay-per-view until Beach Blast 93. That was honestly the next pay-per-view I watched for WCW. I think I asked him to watch Super Brawl. He said no. I don't blame him. Uh, so that was it for Jake. Uh, from what I understand, he was having a lot of personal problems at this point. Uh, left the left the business for a little while. Had a run in Mexico, had some runs in Smoky Mountain, and actually was a champion in Smoky Mountain for a bit before returning to the WWF in 1996. So yes, this was Jake Roberts WCW. This is my first WCW pay per view. Probably might have been my last. Thankfully, it wasn't, but. Yeah, I still continue to watch WWE after this because I was wondering, you know, what was going to happen. You know, and I remember Sting had cut a couple promos on Jake on television, and he just went right back to feeding with Vader again. So I don't know. But either way, I remember enjoying the show. I thought the show, for the most part, was fun. But at the same time, though, again, the the, the main event that I actually really wanted to see that I've been looking forward to for a couple months didn't deliver. Now, I know this is supposed to be reminiscing about fun stuff in professional wrestling, but even as a as a kid, you're going to be disappointed. And that's what it was. He just, <laughs> to quote Martin Short and get over it, I'm sorry, it's just not any good. <laughs> but and I normally don't go over this sort of stuff uh, on my podcast about how, you know, like ratings. And, like, I, I do, but not to the, an overabundant point. I only did that on the Goldberg episode because I was following the TV ratings at that time. However, I told you WWE wasn't doing good business. Now, I'm going to go over some of their pay-per-view buys. Now, sorry, oh, sorry about that. Was something I'm editing just finished. Now, the one of the largest pay-per-views they, they ever had, uh, buys-wise, was, um, what's it called? Uh, because it's hard to find some like actual WWE numbers without subscribing to the Observer, which I don't. Um, the, the 88 Great American Bash, I believe, was one of their highest ever. Uh, the 1990 Great American Bash, I believe, was the only one at that point that had hit uh, 200,000 buys. So I think that was the record. The 1990 Great American Bash where Sting defeated Ric Flair to become the champion for the first time in July of 1990, uh, broke 200,000, and was the only WCW pay-per-view to do that and would be for the next few years. Uh, so again, I'm going to look at the um, things for the past year leading up to this pay-per-view. So the previous year's Halloween Havoc did 120,000 or so buys. 
Starcade that year did uh, did okay with 155,000. Super Brawl with Sting and Luger, where Luger uh, lost the uh, title to Sting, did 160,000. So solid number there. But then Wrestle War with the War Games was disappointed. Did 105,000. Um, 70,000 for both Beach Blast and Great American Bash that summer. So they, they did not do very well. Halloween Havoc 92, Sting and Jake the Snake Roberts. Again, this goes to show the magnitude of the match and how well it was built up. And Jake's name value, 165,000 buys. The largest since Starcade 1990. So in a time where WCW wasn't doing the best business, this show did really well for them at a time where nothing was doing really well business-wise. Had a solid TV audience, from what I understand, still. And, and I mean, their houses were terrible. And I'm not just not just trying to be snarky, saying that their houses were fucking terrible. So yeah, um, this did a great business for them. So it shows that obviously the commitment was there to make this be a success, which, for all intents and purposes, despite how the match turned out, despite how disappointing it was, it wasn't a success. Because, okay, let's see here. So Halloween Havoc, 92, got 165,000. Starcade that year, it dropped to 95,000. They could not keep up the momentum, sadly. Uh, they would not reach even close to this number until Hogan. Hogan arrived uh, back to the Beach 94, where they had well over 200,000 buys. So there you have it. Jake Roberts, in a short yet eventful time in WCW, did great business with them. I'm not surprised this man learned this as I got older that Jake's uh, tenure there, despite how you know laughed about it, how people laugh about it in hindsight, it had its success. It did draw for them. But again, looking back on this now and looking even with fresh eyes again, I can honestly see why my nine year old self was disappointed. Again, hey, but I didn't give up on wrestling, did I? I didn't get on the internet and whine because the match wasn't all that great. I didn't enjoy it. No, just okay. Well, what's next? As a kid, that's all I'm thinking about. What's what, what's going to happen now? Sting went back defeating with Vader pretty much, which is fine with me. Again, even as a kid, it's fine with me because I like the Sting Vader. I hated Vader with a passion because of how he injured people and whatnot, and. I just want to see Sting finally get some revenge on him. So going forward, I still supported Sting. And yeah. And this was an interesting time for WCW. It was a very polarizing era, to say the least. Whew. Well, that's going to do it in this episode. A very different episode this week. I don't know. This one might not get a lot of great feedback. But uh, either way, um, I want to thank all of you who have tuned in as of late uh, to the podcast. Be Summer of Punk episode has done really, really well. Um, I wish so more you would listen to the Raven uh, slash Discovering ECW episode. I enjoyed doing that one. That was a great trip down memory lane. But next week, going back to the WWF, fast forwarding a bit to my early teen years with SummerSlam 1997. Bret Hart versus The Undertaker for the WWF Championship. Also, that was the infamous match between Owen Hart and Stone Cold Steve Austin for the Intercontinental title. Every single match of the show had a stipulation. This is around the era where 
Vince was listening to Jim Cornette a lot more than uh, not a lot more, but about equal to Russo almost. Like you know, Russo, he you know joined the creative team in uh, the spring of '97, that same year. Had Vince's year more than anybody. Then suddenly Cornette had more of an input again. It was it was an interesting era, so to say the least. But that was SummerSlam '97 will be the next one uh, I review. I had a great pay per view party for that one, so I'll talk all about that. Next week, if you want to follow me on social media, I'm at BillChase33 on both Twitter and Instagram. Also, uh, if you want to uh, add me on Facebook, you can. You can chat wrestling, ask wrestling questions, and whatnot. I might be doing a Q&A episode where I answer just any questions anybody has about any wrestling. Uh, that might be coming up. I'm thinking of doing that the week after SummerSlam uh, 1997. We'll see. I don't know. I always like doing episodes like that, so here we go. All right, so that's going to do it for us here at Diary of a Wrestling Fan. So again, if you're listening on Spotify and Anchor, give me a follow and just keep up with upcoming episodes of the podcast. Thank you to those tuning in once again. So until next time, I am Bill Chase quoting a fellow native Hamiltonian when I say, Don't you dare miss it. Thank you for listening to Diary of a Wrestling Fan with Bill Chase. If you'd like to make a contribution to the show, just remind everyone that Bret Hart is better than Shawn Michaels.